This week, our team, uh, who are all remote, are coming to town for our quarterly team retreat. Uh, we do this every three months. Actually, I guess we do it three times a year. We don't do it in the winter. We do an online meeting then because it conflicts with uh, holidays and whatnot. But every three months, uh, we get together in person uh, and have a retreat together and get to see each other and hang out and chat about a few business things and whatnot. And as I was prepping for that this week, um, I made a list of eight different things that we do as a remote team that I've learned from a myriad of people over the years uh, that we've found just to be really effective. And I thought I'd share them in this format and just kind of have a official place of record for me to refer to in the future. And maybe this will be helpful for you as well. So let's go through eight hacks to make your remote team better. Number one is track the three greens on a weekly basis. So our three greens, we keep a spreadsheet uh, of our weekly metrics. And at the top of each person's list are three green metrics. And these are the same across everyone on the team, whether you're a contractor or full-time employee. And the three greens are, what is your happiness score, scale of one to 10? What is your stress score, scale of one to 10? How many hours did you work last week? And the hours isn't for accounting or paying or anything like that. No full-time employee works off an hourly basis. But these three greens are your general health. Are you happy with what you're doing? Are you really stressed out or not stressed out at all? And are you working a lot? Um, And if you're working over 40 hours a week on a consistent basis, that's not good. If your stress level is consistently over a five or six, that's not good. If your happiness level is consistently below a seven or eight, we need to, we need to have a conversation. And I simply just look at these metrics on a weekly basis on Tuesday morning once everybody's filled them in. I look at them, just glance over them and see if there's anything that sticks out that I need to take action on. And I'm looking for trends like has somebody's happiness score been a four for three weeks in a row? If so, probably going to have a one-on-one conversation with them and, and talk through what's going on. Maybe a personal thing, might be a job happiness thing. It might be something we know is a thing and they're just working through. But I found the three greens to be something that helps us a good bit. Second thing is high-level one-on-ones every three months. So we will zoom out. We call these DTRs. I don't know where that originally came from to define the relationship, I guess, in dating talk. Um, But what I found is, especially with a remote team, it's really easy to drift. And for you to be really in sync in January, but by the time June comes along, you just don't even feel like you know what you're doing anymore. So our cure for this is the week before our quarterly in-person meeting, I will have a one-on-one talk with each person on the team, any direct report. And right now that's everyone on the team um, over the next three to six months, uh, those will start being delegated out and only four or five people will report directly to me. But at any rate, having one-on-one DTRs on a, on a three months, every quarterly basis has been big. It catches and some of the questions I'll ask. I was just doing these, doing a couple of them yesterday and I have a few more today. Uh, I got notes in front of me. So a couple things I'll ask is, uh, First, I'll let them know they're doing a good job if they are. And this is, I've probably had a conversation with them before now if they weren't. But I'll ask them how things are going, what their happiness level is at a high level. Where do you want to go? How is what you're doing matching up with your long-term career desires and ambitions? What do you want changed? What feedback do you have for me? Let's review your scorecard together. What things do you want to cover at our quarterly in-person meeting? What are our core values? Just things like that to stay in sync, have good conversation about Uh, What they love doing, what they don't love doing, all that. So good, it keeps job drift from happening and keeps us on the same page. Number three is setting weekly and quarterly goals. And these are written down in that same metric tracking doc that we use. Uh, There's a weekly tab, weekly goals, a quarterly tab, quarterly goals. And typically this week, um, actually last week, the week before our quarterly in-person meeting, everyone will draft up their goals for the next quarter. 
And once we have our DTRs, we'll review those together, offer any feedback to them. And by the time we get to our in-person, everyone then presents their goals for the quarter. They're all written down or everyone can see them at all times and they report on them throughout the quarter on how they're doing. And then the weekly goals are simply the next steps that need to take toward the quarterly goals. So what, what are the big things you got going on this week? What needs to get accomplished above anything else? And those are written down publicly accountable for. Uh, we check up on those in our quarterly, on our weekly standups as well. So setting weekly and quarterly goals, having high-level one-on-one talks every three months, tracking the three greens. Those are the first, the three of the eight things. So those are probably the three most important. All right, fourth thing, catch them doing one positive thing each week. That's one note I have to myself on Monday mornings is catch people doing something good. It's really easy to get in the habit of catching people doing stuff bad and giving them giving them corrective feedback. Uh, but one of my biggest takeaways from the book One Minute Manager is this. Catch people in the act of doing something good and tell them this is good. <laughs> um, fifth thing, um, get in person once a quarter. Uh, this is our quarterly meetup we're having this week. We'll meet on – everybody will come in town on Wednesday. We'll have dinner Wednesday night. Then on Thursday – uh, for the first couple hours of the day, we'll go around and everybody will tell their origin story of how they came to work here and what they do. And I'll give a quick little snapshot of themselves. Uh, and then we're going to spend all, almost all the day Thursday working on one big problem that we have uh, at the company. And we frame it as a problem because it makes it easier to work on it. Uh, but one big opportunity or one big thing we need the team's collective feedback on. And then we'll go have fun on Thursday night. Uh, I think we're renting out this nice bowling alley thing with a dinner and whatnot. Um, kind of an upscale place we'll go to. And then thir- Friday, we'll get together for half a day. Uh, do a few more talks, go over some high-level stuff, go over Q3 plans, and just get everybody up to speed with what everyone's doing. And then Friday afternoon, we'll go out and have fun as well. I think we have an escape room rented or something. So, um, But get in person once a quarter. The number one benefit from this, especially with a remote team, is seeing other humans. I don't care if we accomplish anything or solve any problem while we're together. We happen to typically do that, but that's second and third most important thing. The first most important thing is the chemistry that happens when you're together on a semi-regular basis. And that's one of the biggest negatives of a remote team is that you don't have that. So you have to be really intentional about trying to make that happen. But we found it to be really helpful. Number six, get on live video for connections or negative conversations. Maybe I'll affirm it like this. Get on live video for negative conversations. So if you need to give someone a corrective feedback and it's something you know they'll take personal or it's just something fairly major, don't do it via email. Don't do it via Slack or text message. Get on the freaking phone with them. Do it in person if they're local. Try to do it in person if at all possible. But if you're in Nashville and they're in Bogota, uh, it's pretty tough to have an in-person conversation about that that isn't going to be four months from now and it really needs to be corrected right that moment. But do not... Get on, do not use text for negative conversations. Get on face to face as human interaction as much as possible. Too many things can be lost in translation, too much tone. You can't read tone or nuance into, into text. You can read it into an face to face video conversation. Number seven, have a clear scorecard with outcomes and KPIs and clear weekly metrics tied to tracking those KPIs. So at that DTR we have once a quarter, those one on ones. We will pull up each person's scorecard that has clearly articulated their two or three core areas they're focused on, their two or three outcomes they're focused on, and their handful of KPIs. And then we report in that same weekly metric tracking doc right below the greens, right below those three greens, happiness, stress, and hours, are KPIs, like three or four numbers typically, that tie directly to that scorecard that map up with the quarterly and weekly goals. All of it's tied together. But having a clear scorecard where someone can go to in a public place, click it, and remind themselves of what they do and how they're measured in that and track that and talk about that on a weekly basis is so clarifying 
and increases. And we can get better at this. I think we're not. But, uh, these are things I've learned. These aren't, aren't things we've mastered. Uh, but getting really clear on those things helps increase job satisfaction, helps increase knowing what to do. Ask somebody. Here's a test of this. Go and text one the person on your team that's been there the longest and ask them how they describe what they do to someone. And watch it be a rambling mess of, well, I do this and 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 this. And there's a list out like a brain dump of many things. To me, that's a bad sign. They should be able to clearly articulate what their job title is and their two to three outcomes they're responsible for. That there's some there's some psychological effect of that that helps increase job satisfaction, but also just helps them be more effective in your organization. So have a clear job scorecard with outcomes and KPIs clearly articulated and have weekly metrics tied to those KPIs. And last thing, reading it here, clear, yeah, I don't know. I have clear outcomes. I think that ties directly back to the scorecard. Um, But let me give you an example of this. I'm gonna pull up a scorecard here. If I have one available, oh, here we go. All right, so Bethany, she runs our customer support. Uh, her outcomes are these three things. Customer service that our customers and subscribers rave about on a regular basis. Thriving and engaged communities for drip scripts, which is one of our tools we've been testing a community out on. And help with rebooking anyone that gets dumped in our sales funnel. So we have sales calls and sometimes they have to be rescheduled or missed. And she's responsible for making those people feel like they're not getting the shaft and make sure they get rescheduled and are taken care of. And then we have clear KPIs attached to that. So for customer service, you know, the outcome is customer service that our customers and subscribers rave about. Her measurement of that is a less than four hour response time and a greater than 90% happiness score. So we have clear numbers that she can be measured on on a daily basis or weekly basis. Uh, So those are the eight things. Let's review them real quick. Track the three greens, happiness, stress, and hours. High, number two, high-level one-on-one talks every three months with everyone on your team. Number three, set weekly and quarterly goals. Number four, catch each person doing something positive each week. Number five, get in person once a quarter, face-to-face, in the same room with people. Number six, get on live video for uh, negative, conversa- negative conversations or corrections. Number seven, have a clear scorecard with outcomes and KPIs. And number eight, have clear weekly metrics tied to those outcomes and KPIs. Those are eight things for us that are probably can be used for any team, but are especially helpful for running a remote team. Hope those are helpful. Um, if you have any tips for remote team stuff, let me know. Let me know on Twitter at Harris underscore Brian. Would love to learn from you. Thanks. See ya. So uh, my friend Benji uh, Hyman, at Benji, H-Y-A-M on Twitter, uh, sent out a tweet yesterday uh, that I saw that I thought was interesting and uh, I responded to in Twitter and then he asked for more explanations. So I couldn't figure out how to consolidate this into 140 characters or 280 characters or whatever it is now. So I thought I'd uh, record a few notes and publish it publicly and whatnot so other people might be able to benefit from it as well. All right, so let me read the tweet first and then I'll give a few thoughts that I have on it. So his tweet said, from my experience, I found that when someone wants to, quote, partner with you, they're looking for you to send them business. I don't think I've ever seen a partnership that's mutually beneficial to both companies. The lesson, be weary of partnerships as a growth strategy. Now, if you followed me much at all, you know that um, one of our number one growth strategies is partnerships. Um, So first of all, I kind of smiled in a like, uh, I don't know in a way that made me excited because anytime someone is down, publicly down on a growth strategy that I know works really well, I get excited because I know it's not going to be saturated anytime soon. Uh, but that's kind of the nature of partnerships in general. They're, they're hard. And my response to Benji was, 
great growth strategy. It's our number one nuanced and easy to do poorly. And I think that's the reason many people haven't doubled down and really scaled up partnerships because they're not, it's not a thing you can just pour ad spend into work on some ads and have it just scale up like crazy. It's something that it takes time and effort, but it has the, if, if I were to pick the first marketing channel for nearly any startup, it would be partnerships over ads, over SEO and content. Uh, And here's why one partnerships are harder to screw up than those two. They require not near as much money as those two, and they typically work faster than content and sometimes faster than ads, depending on your experience level with ads. So uh, a partnership in general, let me give you my definition. This is how we define it internally. A partnership is when you provide something valuable to someone else and get promoted to the audience in return. Read it one more time. So partnership is when you provide something valuable to someone else and get promoted to that audience in return. Okay, so let me go through a couple different partnership types. And we run a class called the Partnership Accelerator where we teach how to do this. So I'm pulling a lot of this from our information. We've taught five or six classes, have had right about 250 people go through. Those 250 people have booked over a thousand partnerships, over $10 million in expected revenue from those partnerships. And that's over the last six months. So there's some background. We, we've helped a lot of people with this. So we have some experience in this. So here uh, we have 10 different partnership types and there's tons of different ways you could do partnerships, but here's our 10 major types uh, that we found to work well. Number one is a guest post. Number one is a podcast interview, virtual summits, in-speak, in-person speaking engagement, contest, product bundles, be the bonus. Uh, like when you give your product or a sub product to someone to promote so they can give anyone that buys their product, your product in return. That's confusing, but just go with it. Uh, JV market, affiliate marketing, discount swaps, uh, partner webinars could be on that list. I don't think I've said that one. Um, the three major types that we teach inside of our partnership accelerator are live trainings. That could be in the form of an online workshop, a webinar, a speaking engagement, a Facebook Live, etc. Second type is guest emailing. Uh, a lot of people have heard of guest blogging. This is guest emailing instead where you take basically a lead magnet, email it out to your list, and your partner emails your lead magnet out to their list, and you swap the leads as a result. And the third major type that we teach is the poster board partnership where you become the case study for someone else. So those are the three major types. There's 10 other types that we teach as well. Da, 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 it doesn't matter. So those give you some ideas. As you listen to those ideas, those are some specific ways that we execute on partnerships. Now, um, <coughs> excuse me. Going one step higher, uh, go back to our podcast episode called, I think it's like my business model is the title and you can get more details I'm about to give you. But our number one growth strategy is partnering where we create a tool, a free tool from scratch and then find someone that wants to partner with us to promote the tool. So example, we have a tool called Go Viral, goviral.io. We partner with Michael Hyatt to promote that tool. So we organically bring in three to 4,000 new leads to that tool every month. Michael Hyatt promotes that tool and brings in three to 4,000 leads every month. And we swap the leads back and forth. No affiliate splits, no money spent. We maintain and improve the tool. They promote it. We promote it. We split the leads. This is our number one growth strategy. The number two growth strategy for us is PPC. So we run ads to these tools, generate more leads, generates more leverage with us to ask the partner to promote even more. So that's how our uh, top of the funnel legion works. We create tools. We partner with people on those tools to promote them. We run Facebook ads to those tools to get even more leads and go back to the partner to give him more promotion for the tool. So we're actively shopping multiple tools right now. The number one tool we're shopping for a partner is DripScripts. DripScripts.com gets 7,000 new users a month and we're looking for someone to partner with us. We got a few hot leads on that. We're working, hopefully land someone soon. So that's some background on partnerships, how we look at them. It's the only thing we partner on for us now is creating tools and partnering with people on them. There's tons of different ways you can do partnerships. Uh, The greatest thing, the, the thing I like the most about partnerships 
is typically, if done well, the leads that you get from them are warm and vouched for and really qualified versus a cold Facebook lead who just found out about you yesterday, has zero brand affinity, zero relationship with them. And you can get it to work, obviously, but I would take a lead from a partner that introduced them to me and vouched for me every day over a PPC lead. Same thing for SEO. You have people who are super buyer intent, like they really want the thing you're talking about, but again, zero relationship. So no relationship via content, uh, SEO, no relationship via PPC, but a partner lead is someone who is, it's like my fr- it's like Benji walking up to me and say, hey, Brad, dude, you got to check out my friend Mark. I saw you were hiring a marketing job. He's a great marketer. Mark would then shoot to the front of the stack of the thousand marketers we're interviewing trying to find our head of marketing because he's warm and vouched for by someone else. That's what a partner lead is. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. So um, let me give you a couple of ex- like real life examples of partnerships. And actually, let me go back to this. One thing Benji said in his tweet was, I don't think I've ever seen a partnership that's mutually ben- beneficial to both companies. I would agree with him. They're not common because a lot of people really suck at partners and when they're in partnerships and when they try to pitch someone, they're completely focused on themselves. Uh, one of our, we have three commandments. Let's see if I can pull them up and remember real, real quick that we teach when we're teaching partnerships. Let's see if I can find them. I should have this member. All right, here we go. Three commandments of partnerships. Number one, serve the partner first and yourself second. One thing we always try to do in our partnerships is send our partners more leads and more money than they send us because I want to be the best partner that person's ever had so I never have to find another one again. So number one, always serve the partner first. If you go into, hey, man, I want to partner with HubSpot and your number one goal is to generate a thousand new subscribers for you and you have no idea what their goal is and you're doing the partnership, you're completely screwed. The promotion is not going to go well. Just think about it like a lot of people have, I think a guest post is probably one of the most common ways to think about a partnership. And you're thinking about, man, like you have some goal in mind when you're doing that. Now the, the win for the partner is they're getting a free piece of content. So remember the definition of a partnership is when you provide something valuable to someone else and get promoted to the audience in return. So in the, in the format of a guest post, you're providing the thing you're providing a value is content. The thing they're providing in return is their audience eyeballs on it. And they're going to find about you, find out about you, maybe opt into a lead magnet or a content upgrade you have in that post, or at the very least click over to your site, maybe fill out a contact form and become a lead for you. So, um, that can look a lot of different ways, but the number one thing I see, and I think the thing that provoked Benji to say, I don't think I've ever seen a mutually beneficial partnership is one, um, most people suck at making sure their partner is winning more than themselves. So I would say the reason I said it's nuanced and easy to do poorly when I'm talking about partnerships is that you have to put yourself second. Like you have to dig deep to figure out what the win for your partner is and make sure if nothing else happens, they get that win, even if you miss your win. So a couple of examples, like real life examples of case studies and whatnot, just to give you some crunchy stuff. Um, let's see if I can a couple listed out here. Okay, so we have a client out Turin. Uh, he's a lawyer. He teamed up with a local co-working place. I was reading the email trying to get the context for it. A local co-working place uh, did a lead magnet swap with them where they sent out a lead magnet of his to their customer base. So they have whatever, a couple hundred, uh, looks like about a thousand people that are signed up for their co-working place or something or a list of that. So they sent an email that said, uh, and remember, Alps a lawyer, are you GDPR compliant? Are your terms and conditions ironclad? If not, you should you could be sued at any moment and be tied up in court for years. Da 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 da. Click this link to download the checklist and get weekly advice from Alp. And it's a checklist on how to be GDPR compliant, a ten part checklist. From that email, and this is a real email that was sent for Alp after recruiting this co working place as a partner. Alp got four hundred and eight email subscribers, and those four hundred and eight email subscribers generated a fifteen thousand dollar project and a three thousand dollar per month retainer client. 
So that's $36,000 over the course of the first year, plus $15,000. I think that's $51,000 from one partnership with a local co-working place of all places. Uh, that's one example. Let me give you another example. That would be in the guest emailing category. In the live training category, uh, we had one client, Cheryl Engelhart, who uh, helps. She does. Uh, she scores movies and teaches musicians how to do something. I don't remember. Uh, teaches them how to uh, get their music published and on sites like CD Baby, Spotify, etc. Uh, so she has, uh, she went to a conference recently, the CD Baby conference called DIY Musician Conference, spoke on stage. While she was on stage, she collected. So remember, the definition of a partnership is when you provide something valuable, that was her speaking, uh, to someone else and get promoted to their audience instead. One of my favorite ways to do this is via speaking. Uh, so Cheryl goes on stage in front of a live audience of a couple hundred people, collects 151 email subscribers on stage and sells $10,541 of her product to those people on stage. So cool way to do a partnership. Let me give you one more example. All right, here's another one. Marissa Medden, uh, she runs a site called Talk College to Me where she tutors and helps kids going into college get scholarships and accepted and all that stuff. She did a, a Facebook live partnership where she came to a Facebook audience of a site called Road to College. And remember the definition of a partnership, when you provide something valuable to someone else uh, someone else, and get promoted to their audience in exchange. So she went to this Facebook audience, had a big Facebook, 24,000 Facebook followers, it looks like, Road to College, did a live training in there where, let's see, it says, attention parents with seniors in high school want to learn the 11 mistakes kids make on common applications. So it's basically a webinar, but in Facebook live context. Uh, she got 275 email subscribers and sold 33 copies of her $97 course uh, doing that. So a couple of examples of what partnerships look like, a couple of reasons people do them poorly. One, they put their self first and not the partner. Two, they don't have clear goals for their self and the partner. Three, they haven't repped it a lot. So just like anything, if you try to go do Facebook ads or SEO tomorrow, you're going to suck at it at first and it takes time to do it. Um, so yeah, uh, let's see. Read back over Benji's tweet. From my experience, I found that when someone wants to partner with you, they're looking for you to send the business. Absolutely. That's the, that's the definition of a partnership. The other piece of that is, and they should be looking to send you business as well. I don't think I've ever seen a partnership that's mutually beneficial to both companies. I would imagine if you look around a little bit more, you'll see them all over the place. They're pretty common. Um, but they might look, they always take different forms. Uh, the lesson, be weary of partnerships as a growth strategy. I, I love it when people are weary of strategies that work well. So I would echo Benji's advice and say, be very weary of it and, and leave all the good partners for us to find for our clients and for ourselves. Uh, not just talking tongue in cheek there. Anyway, those are some thoughts on the tweet, thoughts on partnerships in general. I love them. I'm really dog, uh, doggish on them, bullish on them, and would encourage you to, uh, to check them out as well. I think maybe we have a article on our site on partnerships. Just Google videofruit.com slash uh, <coughs> videofruit.com partnerships. I think we have some information there you can check out. We also run a partnership accelerator every few months where we walk you through and we help you land your first partner um, by, the end of the part by the end of the four-week class. So anyway, a few thoughts. Hope that helps. See y'all later.